0: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Ah, uh, yes, it is science on the radio once again. My name is Chris, and this week I attend the launch of a new scientific app, like a mobile app for your mobile device that helps you identify water bugs, which are a great indicator of, you know, fresh water quality and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I attend a, a bit of a launch event. You can hear some, um, some merriment in the background. Um... Don't listen to that. Just listen to the um, listen to the intelligent conversation that's going on there. Uh, Beth, what have you got for us?
1: Um, oh yeah, I was just, there was a lot of cheese there. So that, yes, I You were there. You were there. That's right. Yes. That. Um, I look forward to listening to the interview. Um, I talk to Dr. Linda Blackhall about microbes. She is very passionate about microbes, as am I, as aren't we all perhaps here and lost in science. And so we chat about understanding microbes and how important they are to us.
0: The the very small, that have a big impact. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm.
2: It's true. And I stumbled across some newly published research that goes some way to explain why people in comments tend to uh, heap disdain on things that, that don't agree with their beliefs. And why do people do that? And people have come to the conclusion that they think they know why.
1: So troll studies...
2: Not really trolls, just um, just people in general. So okay. people not trolling deliberately, but people taking offence at things that challenge them.
0: Okay, I look mm. forward to hearing how this is not going to be the obvious.
2: It's kind of obvious, but it's um, interesting because they did a three-part study. So the third part of the study was how do we stop them doing it? Okay, well, we shall find
0: out about that shortly. On with the show. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I am here at the launch of a new mobile app for well, for looking at the creatures that live in their waterways and assessing the environmental health of said fresh uh, freshwater bodies. And I'm here with the app's creator. Uh, so the app is the Waterbug app, and I'm here with its creator, John Goodaham. Uh, John Goodaham, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks. Now, can you first of all tell us, uh, what are these waterbugs that we're talking about?
3: Well, Chris, they're... Um it, it's one of those very simple ones they're actually bugs that live in water um, generally if you pull apart a word you can actually figure out what it means um, they are in, in this particular instance it's sort of restricted a bit I guess to the bugs that are in water that you can see a lot of people know about you know, bugs that you can catch and that are sort of health problems these are the slightly larger ones that um, in my opinion are slightly more charismatic um, but tend to have legs and the, of the size that you can see sort of without a microscope so it's, it's those guys so we're not talking
0: fish and those kind of things. We're talking like um, insect larvae and worms and those sort of things?
3: Yeah, the, the, the scientific term that they all go by is um, freshwater macro invertebrates, And that's, you know, slightly more specific. It says they're in the freshwater and, and the, the macro sort of gives you an idea for the size range, I guess. The microinvertebrates are sort of a different set of things that are a little bit more planktonic. And you have a devil of a time identifying. So these are the easier to identify things. And I think that's why a lot of people have ended up concentrating on them. Simply because they have enough characters for you to actually do something with when you look at them.
0: Okay, and when you say do something with, what kind of things can you do? What's the importance to the environment?
3: Well, I guess the, the big things that these guys get used for is um, if you um, you know have a couple of hours up your sleeve, you can sit down and identify these things using the various bits of literature, or indeed using the Waterbug app. Um, and then once you get a list of names, um, our knowledge about where these things exist is probably at a reasonable enough level that we can actually make a guess as to whether the the environment in which they live is rubbish or not. So, for example, there are certain bugs that, uh, you know, if, if things turn nasty, they basically turn up their toes and die. We call these sensitive sort of water bugs. Um, and there are other things, you know, which, you could, which are pretty much like the, the stereotypical cockroach and could survive a nuclear blast. Um, and so if you only have bugs that, you know, are like aquatic cockroach equivalents, you know, you're in a, probably a fairly rubbish probably an urban waterway often they're some of the nastiest places I've worked Um, whereas if you're in a sort of a pristine montane stream you're more likely to have this well for starters you'll probably have a a higher diversity but you're also likely to have these sort of glory bugs that have you know uh, an awesome reputation for only ever existing in great places what sort of bugs are those? Well, the, the, the three groups that sort of stereotypically get picked on are the, the ephemeroptera, or the mayflies, the plecoptera, the stoneflies, and the tricoptera, or the caddisflies. And basically, if you, if you can sort of uh, you know, identify a few of those in your stream, you're probably looking down the barrel of things being reasonably okay. Depending on which, there's, there's exceptions to that, but, but most of them tend to turn up their toes if things get nasty. So if they're in there, it means they're probably not quite so nasty, if that makes sense. Okay, so and this this new app then uh, that does that help people to assess whether it's got the right kind of bugs that you're that you're talking about? Yep, it's 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 basically a little. Um, much of it is like a book in an app form, so you can actually access the info. But because it's an app, we've tried to s- sort of do extra stuff as well. So there's um, traditionally, if you're you're trying to identify animals, you tend to use what we call taxonomic keys, which are you know lists of questions that um you sort of whiz your way through answering until you end up with a, an end point. So it might ask you, you know, does it have legs? Doesn't it have legs? If it has legs, you go to a page, whatever it is. They're like those old choose-your-own-adventure books that you used to have. And at the very end of that, you end up with an identification. And if you're lucky, it's right. Um, assuming it's right, you then, you know, you know what your animal is. Um, with our app, we've sort of, we've got that traditional taxonomic key style in there. And, you, you, and instead of, you know, turning the page, you basically swipe the screen so it's not that different. Um, but... Many of the things that you want to look at when you're looking at live bugs in front of you are things like the way they move and stuff, and it's very difficult to get that in traditional you know, static uh, literature. So the cool thing about an app, I guess, is we, uh, we're able to incorporate things like little movie clips and stuff like that. So if, if it moves in a peculiar way, like qu- quite regularly, you can describe with um, ridiculous detail what an animal looks like, but just showing somebody at once and them seeing it move in you know, a really particularly distinctive way will instantly give them recognition of that animal when you could have spent four and a half hours trying to explain the bloody thing to them, so that's 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 one of those things we've tried to do by including all that extra media stuff. Um, where was I going with that answer?
0: No, you also have a speedbug tool, which I believe, which can help you actually identify it even quicker than that.
3: That's it. So speedbug is um, we, we were sort of. It's one of those um, tools that is born of uh, that heady mix of alcohol and science, um, and I'm not really talking about preservatives. It's um, we sort of got to thinking about what it is that separates different animals. And when you think about them, when you know a little bit about them, it probably ends up with all of the animals you could ever think of on this big long continuum of the most simple things on the left and the most complicated things on the right. And we were mucking around with phone formats at that stage and there was this wonderful sort of um, roulette style thing that happens in your, you know when you go in your address book and it goes from A to Z and you, just, you can go, if you need someone that's a cue, you just give it a good flick and it whizzes down the queue. And so we got the idea of whacking the entire set of water bugs on like a a roller directory like you have in your phone for looking up um, phone numbers and, and have it move and behave in exactly the same way. And that's sort of where speed bug evolved from. So you get this wonderful sort of spinning roulette wheel sort of effect, so it's exciting, and you also get an idea at the end of it. So, have you resurrected the uh, notion of a hierarchy
0: of, of life from the simplest to most complex? This is kind of a, an idea I think that evolutionary biology is headed away from to a certain extent.
3: Um, it, evolutionary biology has because they have to sort of justify it in what came from what. But when you actually know nothing about what evolved from what else, just looking at stuff gives you a classific like a visual classification of stuff that you, um, you can access without actually having any first, second, third, or fourth year of university training. Um, and it's interesting because um, the people that use Speedbug the worst are the people that know where things evolved from and they get all, all sort of caught up in this, um, oh my God, but that's not right. But your average punter who knows nothing about evolutionary processes, or at least enough, you know, just enough, um, actually uses it really um, quite, quite well. It's, it's, it's very much a, I'm trying to think of what the word I'm looking for is, it's, it's, a, it's an intuitive thing. Yeah. Um, small kids are awesome with it.
0: I had a bit of a play, um, I think I've you know, got the mentality of a small child, and yeah, I quite quite enjoyed it, it was fairly easy to use, and it's that, like I said, it's that simple way of, of thinking about how things fit into the grand scheme of things, and that very quick way of identifying things, just from from a look, I suppose, is it does it look like this, as opposed to trying to get a really complicated um, description of all the features in minute detail.
3: Yeah, and, and it's it's kind of nice that it's rolled out that way. We, we ended up with a couple of glitches, well, not glitches, but difficulties in it, in that in some instances, lots of animals look bloody same. So with those ones, you have to actually go back to the key again, which is kind of disheartening for some people, and you choose this bright blue bug and you go, yes, that's it! And then we throw you into the key again, and you go, oh, damn, I've got to actually read sentences again. But generally speaking, there are only about two or three questions in, so you just need that last little bit, um, th- that extra resolution comes from just a couple of questions. So you've still skipped, you know, three-quarters, nine-tenths of the rest of the key.
0: Great. So if, um, if people want to download this app for free, I believe, and um, identify creatures in their waterway and assess whether they have good quality water, how do they do so?
3: Um, it's all available off... Um, we've got a little floating website that um, bounces you to the uh, Apple or the Android equivalent, depending on what your phone is. I think the water bug, it's www.thewaterbugapp.com. All one word, uh, the middle bit.
0: Okay, thank you. We will put a link on our website and our Facebook for that as well, so people can find it. Thank you very much for talking to us, John. Thanks heaps. It's been a pleasure, Chris. Cheers. Good luck.
1: listening to Lost in Science. So I'm talking to Dr. Linda Blackhall, who is a professor of bioscience at Swinburne University in Melbourne. And she's talking about microbes and why they are so important to us and to ecosystems. Is there a danger if we don't understand the diversity of microbes around us? Is there a danger of we might inadvertently change communities to our detriment?
4: Yes, yes, and of course, well we don't have, we don't have that understanding at the moment. So what we're doing, frequently, uh, with, and with microbial communities in our intestinal tract, our gut is one of those communities where um, there are many people who would say certain uh, food components are vital to humans. Um, well, actually. Pro, pro, they might be right, <laughs> mm. but they might not know why is it vital and, and, and the missing understanding that there might be conversions of whatever it is that we're consuming, uh, whether it's something that's considered to be beneficial, you know, if, uh, cons- consumption, for example, of a good diet high in fibre. Um, well, why is that beneficial? Well, actually, we as humans uh, can't, cannot obtain uh, nutrient from fibre. But fibre plays another role, of course, as well. But, but partially, it is degraded, converted. Let me say, into other components that are absorbed into our bloodstream. Uh, and so, understanding that those systems, or, or that there are those interactions uh, in the in the gut of the human, will allow us to better predict and and understand what's happening to that material. So, there there are the studies that have been done are very um, uh, broad. Uh, look-see experiments, add this amount to see what happens, add a different amount to see what happens. But if we understand the microbial communities and what they're doing, we will understand why are there differences between uh, different uh, diets or dosages of various components that we'll be consuming in our diet. So we'll understand the reason why they're beneficial and be able to um, manipulate those components in a a much more um, uh, knowledgeable fashion.
1: And I, Linda, I gather from you that an interest of yours is symbiosis, so organisms working together. Are microbes usually part of such symbiosis? How important are they for life?
4: Yes, yes. I haven't mentioned that word symbiosis, but I'm glad you asked the question because indeed um, uh, many, many microbial communities do live in a symbiotic uh, fashion. So they actually, it's a natural it's a natural phenomenon that they exist in these symbioses that they're beneficial for each other um, and on occasion um, and, but it'll be, it'll be a battle a reason for why uh, some species become uh, eliminated from a particular system but very frequently there's symbiotic associations that occur between different species and that can be microbial in association with a larger uh, visible uh, species. Um, and one of the classic symbiotic associations is um, in in corals, those animals that uh, populate the Great Barrier Reef of uh, off Queensland, where a coral is an animal, and a well-known symbiotic association is between the coral animal and a single-celled photosynthetic uh, species that, well, is photosynthetic, so can acquire um, fixed carbon material, food, let me say, that they pass to the, to the coral and the coral can survive. So that's a well-known uh, symbiosis. All of the methods and mechanisms for how that symbiosis um, exists are not known, although we have got some knowledge. And then associated or a part of that symbiotic um, species, or those two species, are numerous uh, bacteria and other microscopic life forms, including viruses, uh, and all, all organisms, uh, plants, animals, all microbes even, uh, harbour different types of viruses, mm-hmm. uh, which, which are indeed a part of that complex um, community that can form a part of the symbiosis. So it's generally working together in a beneficial fashion. Uh, and so one of the species of uh, bacteria that lives with corals are bacteria that can fix nitrogen from the water and so they're able to convert it into a form that the coral and the, um, uh, the photosynthetic organism can um, can utilise uh, in their um, growth and, and, and ability to survive under those conditions. So there are many known uh, functions uh, about which we, we have some knowledge, let me say, uh, but there's going to be numerous other ones, um, sup- some of them quite subtle and some... Um, Uh, more prominent uh, in the survivability of the the different species. We humans are a symbiosis. Our association, our relationship that we have with our microbial community is a symbiotic association. And as I said before, without the ones in our gut, we would not be alive because we cannot obtain... um, Uh, we don't obtain nutrition from the food that we consume. It's converted by that microbial population in our gut to a form that then is beneficial or useful, should I say, for us. So without them we would be dead and this is a classic situation of a a symbiosis where there's benefit all around. The microbes in our gut obtain the carbon sources or the energy requirements that they need uh, and then they convert that material into a form that we can acquire and utilise as well. So it's a beneficial situation. Uh, there are symbiosis that are not beneficial, but in the, in the cases that I've, two cases I've mentioned, both of them are ones where most frequently the symbiosis is uh, beneficial for the different species that comprise that uh, symbiosis. But the notion that humans are um, single species, we just walking around like a single uh, organism, we're actually a very complex um, community of organisms. Never, never are humans alone. We always have our uh, attendant, our living with us, very complex community of several thousand other species.
1: Great. And so what do you think needs to happen for people to appreciate um, the microbes that live around us? They've had a bit of a bad rap. Is it just education or understanding?
4: Yes, It's a, well, it's a combination of both, but it's about communicating the um, the, the benefits uh, about these uh, b- um, the organisms that, the microorganisms that live with us, the bacteria, the germs that live with us, and those words, at least the word germ, has a negative uh, connotation. It's a word that's used in a, in a very negative fashion. Um, but indeed, uh, one way, of course, is to communicate via stories and, and telling stories about these um, associations, the symbiotic associations, the communities of organisms that live together uh, in a story fashion, um, and that's uh, one of the forms that's a very uh, effective way of communication uh, because if a story can be written, say for children, they will enjoy the story. If a story can be written, they'll learn along the way. But the adults, the, uh, the readers, the ones who perhaps will be reading to the children, of course for them also it will be a new story, a new piece of information, new knowledge so it's a matter of getting out and communicating that these these organisms are not bad. It's simply not true that they're all bad. Uh, it's 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 such a tremendously low number of organisms who are bad bad that is potentially can kill us if that's what your de- definition of bad is um, in relation to the number of the different species that are beneficial. Uh, I don't underestimate the importance of. The, um, the, the field of uh, where, where, where an organism might kill the host, the human for example, that is really important and needs to be studied and is being studied, so that is an element of the studies. But the, um, the balance of the information needs to be brought across as well in that there are so many other species that are very beneficial, so don't lump all um, germs into the same class there's only a few who are bad and a very large, large portion who are, who are tremendously beneficial and, and, and without which we, we wouldn't be here
1: Dr Linda Blackall, thank you so much for your time, it's been really That's um, a Great pleasure, it. thank you Beth Thank you, and that was Dr Linda Blackall who is a professor of bioscience from Swinburne University in Melbourne chatting to us about microbes and the microbial world
2: Anyone who follows any science or pretty much any topic of interest, really, under the sun—if uh, you look at it on the internet—you'll be familiar with the concept of online comments. We've all come across these, I'm
0: sure. I try not to these days. I try not to read the comments. Don't read the comments. No. Yeah,
2: I, I have to agree. They—they they tend to, um, you know, deteriorate quite rapidly. Uh, pretty much all the time, but the intention of including comments on news articles and blogs is really to increase engagement with the readers, so you want people to read it and you want them to keep coming back to the same article because the more hits you get, the more ads you sell basically is how it really okay. works uh, so and also you 're adding content this is this is theoretically you 're adding mm-hmm. content to the to the article you 've published for free you don 't have to pay these people they just do it for nothing um, because everyone has an opinion. But most online comment sections, as I said, rapidly deteriorate into predictable flame wars between people who agree with the published content and those who disagree with whatever the article is about. Um, And this is often the case when the content discusses findings of particularly verifiable scientific articles about various topics, which may challenge the beliefs or behaviour of a particular group. So, for example, climate change is an obvious one where any article for against it tends to deteriorate into a slanging match between these opposing teams. So obviously since the internet came about, psychologists have been very interested in this topic and they want to know what's going on. So Peter Nauroth at Phillips University Marburg in Germany designed a series of experiments to f- try and figure out exactly what was going on with these negative comments. So he took a group of self-identified gamers. Now he chose gamers, I guess, because it's not particularly controversial, and a lot of people would be happy to identify apart from, as apart gamers. From Gamergate. And well, yeah, Gamergate. But I mean, as as a as as something, because he has to choose people who self-identify as yep, gamers. Okay. So that, that was an easy group to focus on, right, yep. without you know outing anyone as having particular political beliefs. Okay, say. Yep. So he took a group of self-identified gamers, which is people who play video games, and showed them two articles regarding violence in video games and how it related to real-life violence, which is, you know, in itself mildly controversial sort of topic of, uh, of research. So one article showed no correlation between violent games and reality, while the other showed strong links between on-screen violence and antisocial behavior. And the 655 participants were asked to read the pieces and give their reactions and also encouraged to comment on the articles in the comments section. Hmm. So what they found was that overwhelmingly the participants who most strongly identified as gamers were more likely to have negative reactions to the article showing a link between violence and games.
1: How did they test if someone more strongly identified as a gamer? Uh, when,
2: when they screened the participants at the beginning, they said, you know, do you, do you often play games? Do you find, okay. you know, do you, do you identify with, with gamers? Do you strongly find your personal identity uh, with gamers and that sort
0: of thing? So this shouldn't be a surprise. People who are strongly identify as gamers have a stronger opinion about the topic. Is that?
2: That's basically what they found. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, and conversely, people who did not self-report as strongly affiliated to gamers didn't react strongly but strong gamers strongly identified gamers even attempted to discredit the validity of the study and the findings and the researchers so they didn't just disagree they didn't just go i don't like it they tried to find flaws in the study which is you know i guess that's a kind of peer review level of of looking at things but that they that really was an obvious um, conclusion that they could draw from what they found so the researchers and this is you know where the obvious stuff comes in. Uh, The researchers believe this is evidence that when an individual strongly identifies with a group and draws a great deal of their self image from that group, they react negatively to perceived attacks against the values of the group. This is all pretty straightforward. Seems like pretty logical stuff. And other studies have found similar results. So they weren't particularly surprised by that. They were in fact expecting that to happen. And it seems pretty obvious that when people feel threatened, they go on the offensive, they react in the same way when it happens to a group with which they identify strongly in order to reaffirm their social identity. So they get their part of their identity from being part of this group. The group gets attacked, they go on the attack. But in the final part of the experiment, the gamers had their social identity reaffirmed uh, by explaining to them that their particular group was more likely to excel in some way. And they responded by posting less negative comments and reacting less negatively to the perceived threat so basically they took the gamers aside and said well actually gamers are you know generally shown to have higher intelligence and gamers generally don't uh, don't fall for this trap of doing this so they explained the kind of the experiment behind what they were doing and okay. said oh but but what we found is that gamers are above this sort of thing and they don't generally react that way and they found that the gamers went oh well that's you know that's that's fine. And they, and they felt less negative because they'd had their, had their ego massage. Yeah. It, well, the group's ego massage because exactly. they were saying this whole group uh, is still a good thing to belong to. Uh, you shouldn't oh, feel threatened okay. by this new information because you guys are not, not falling into these affirming traps. their
1: identity yeah, and yeah. Kind of, they're so, feeling less secu- insecure about that.
2: That's right. Because what they, what they found was that it was the personal insecurity as a result of the new information. So if you, alleviated that personal insecurity then they were less likely to be to to attack back or to fight back against what was otherwise reasonably good research
0: and that does that is consistent with other stuff that we've looked at recently about say you know climate change again where um you know different you know sort of antagonism between groups and that if you can find ways to not threaten a group's identity and their own ideals but work with them then they're less likely to oppose yeah, that's um, yeah.
2: right. And yeah, so if if you can if you can present this information in a non-threatening way to a group and, you know, help them see that it's not necessarily a threat to their group, mm-hmm. but it's just information or it's, yep. you know, just a way of different way of looking at the same information, then they're less likely to go on the on the offensive. But I, don't, I don't I'm not exactly sure how we can use this information to um shut down the flame wars in comments threads all over the internet. But, but they have suggestions? No. <laughs> that's, that's for someone else to do the research okay. into. If you want to read the full paper, it's actually all available online. Their research methodology is pretty solid and it's all written out there if you want to pick holes in it, if you feel threatened in any way. Um, there isn't, unfortunately, a comment section at the bottom. So if, but, you're an, if you're
0: an avid commenter and you feel threatened by this comment research... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You
2: can you can you can't really get stuck in. You might have to correspond directly with the head of the study, but you can look for the study. It's available online in the journal PLOS One and it's called Social Identity Threat Motivates Science Discrediting Online Comments. Hmm. So uh have a look for it and um yeah, I guess you could comment on our blog if you really wanted to. We can.
0: Okay, and that's it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have looked at water bug apps, we have looked at the microbes that help you in your daily life, and we have looked at internet comments and... Yeah, how not to make them so threatening. Now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please do. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can look us up on Facebook. We're Lost in Science on 3CR. And we are on Twitter, Lost in Science 1, I believe we are. Or you can listen to us on the radio at the same time next week when, once again, Beth, Stu and Chris will get... Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.